Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Melanated Faith Podcast. Today, we are joined by Christy Lauren Adams. Christy is a speaker, author, youth advocate, and ordained Baptist minister. Christy is the author of Parable of the Brown Girl, Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way, and its middle grade version, Black Girls Unbossed, Young World Changers Leading the Way. The books are published by Broadleaf and Beaming Books. Parable of the Brown Girl has received awards for the best young adult book from the African American Literary Awards and the New York Black Librarians Caucus. Christy also works as Dean of Spiritual Life and Equity at Hill School and is an instructor of religious studies. Christy is a graduate of Temple University with a degree in advertising and a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary where she obtained her Master of Divinity degree. Oh my goodness, Christy's amazing and so accomplished. You're going to love this conversation. Her heart is so genuine. And honestly, I just love her passion for young people, especially young girls. So listen in and enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Melanated Faith Podcast. Um, Today, we are joined by Christy Lauren Adams. And y'all, her work and writing is phenomenal. If you don't have her books, go get them. Definitely link in the show show notes, places where you can go to find her books. But in the meantime, join us for this amazing conversation. Christy, I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I wanted to give people a little bit more of an idea of who you are and what you do. Feel free to share whatever you want. This is no pressure for your life story, but maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are and then what led you into this journey of writing books and especially like to young black girls. Yeah, well, right now I'll start with where I am right this second. So I'm currently working and living at a boarding school in Pennsylvania. Uh, My official title is Dean of Spiritual Life and Equity, which means that I do both spiritual life and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's a fancy title for two jobs in one. I started sort of in New Jersey. That's where I'm from, um, which from here is only about an hour and 20 minutes. So I'm pretty close to to my family. I started there. I grew up in the church. I always say I grew up in the Black church. And was was subsequently later on uh, licensed and ordained in the same church. It was not a really wasn't a desire of mine to go into ministry, but my church was very heavily active in the community, not just sort of this typical community outreach, but like, you know, marching in the streets, doing, you know, showing up at Mm -hmm. board of education meetings, you know, things like that. We were we were were the community for the most part. And that that had a lot of um, influence over my life in general. And so I, I think that was more ingrained in me and that was something that was more of an interest. Also, we were very focused on young people and pouring into the life of young people. And I just happened to, at that time, I was an adolescent. So I grew up sort of under that prioritized agenda. So I feel mm-hmm. like I am a product of those, those people that poured into me in that agenda. And so I went to college at Temple University in Philadelphia, not far from here. I majored in advertising, not doing that, of course, but you know, whatever. <laughs> you figure it out when you're in college. But when I left there, I worked at a residential treatment facility for teenage girls with severe emotional difficulties. And even though that was only six months, I always used that as sort of like the catalyst that pushed me over the edge not just for working with young girls, but young people in general. Mm -hmm. And so I left uh, there after that experience and 
worked as a, a youth specialist at a community development corporation that was attached to my church. My church had a community development corporation that had foster care agency in it, employment oh. readiness um, programs. Our downstairs in the basement was what we, called, what we called the Underground Youth Enrichment Center. And I was the youth specialist for the underground, had entrepreneurship program for teens and after school program for, for eighth grade and under. Uh, we called it the homework club. So, I you know, it. I'm rushing through it, but we, I, this, this was my upbringing and I was 21, 22 at the time, just turned 22, I think. And so this is what, you know, this is, this is what I, I grew up around. And not only that, but went back after college to work in. It was from there that I said, you know, maybe I'll try seminary out. Um, Princeton wasn't too far away. My pastor had gone to Princeton and then I, I got into Princeton. So I, I wound up going there for my master of divinity. I did not want to be a pastor, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why I went. You know, it was when you're that age and not to say that I don't do things that I don't feel led to do anymore. I do, but not the way that I did when I was younger. I was very like, I feel led to go here. I'm going to go. I feel led. I feel led, you know, so I just sort of went (laughs) with it. And my only reason and justification was that I felt led and that was enough. Now it has to be led and logic and money and, you know, and I know that it's like, I know that that is the mature response now, but part of me wishes that I still had that fearlessness mm-hmm. that I did when I was younger to say, I don't know why I'm going to seminary, but I do know that I feel led to go. So that's why I went. Um, and I thought I was going to go get a PhD after I tried to get a PhD. But and at the time, uh, Melissa Harris, well, who was Melissa Harris Lacewell at the time before she got married, she was at Princeton, uh, the university. Yolanda Pierce was at the uh, seminary. So we had a nice little like group. Uh, mm-hmm. Cornell West was still at the university. Eddie Law was there. So we were just taking classes and yeah. we, just, we were just the bomb.com. You can tell us <laughs> nothing. Okay. And you look back, you know, I'm like, wow, we were really blessed to be around some of the great, the greatest minds in that space. Anyway, so from there, I went back to work at my church again, but at the actual church, not at the Community Development Corporation mm-hmm. as a director of youth ministries. And I was still kicking and screaming with the whole ministry, you know, mm-hmm. uh, license and all that. I was yep. like, I don't want to be reverend. I don't want to wear a robe. <laughs> you know, I was very like, no, you know, I'm going to yeah. do the work. I don't need the title, you know. And I thought it was like very roll your sleeves up was that was my mentality, not the formality. But then I realized it was a blessing to be a young black woman in that position, uh, particularly in spaces where women's in leadership, there were spaces where women in leadership was Mm -hmm. discouraged in some churches. And that was just that wasn't my upbringing. I've always we've even though Pastor Stories was our pastor, we always had a woman executive pastor. We Mm -hmm. always had women in the pulpit. So I just didn't know that was a thing until I even got to seminary. After there, uh, so I did get licensed ordained there and then eventually left there, went to California for four years. I felt led. That was a hard, I felt led. (laughs) It's far from home. So that was a hard, I felt led. But I really, truly felt led (laughs) to this one position at Azusa Pacific University. And I I worked there as as one of the campus pastors, stayed there for four years, then was back in D.C., was back on the East Coast, but in D.C. for a bit at Georgetown as a Protestant chaplain at the Law Center in the university. And then came back to Jersey after not being able to negotiate some salary stuff there. It was in Jersey for a little while. And that is when the uh, book writing, mm-hmm. when I was trying to figure out, because I, I wanted to stay in D.C., 
But, you know, I never wanted to leave. I felt like it was a black woman's, like, it was a space for black women. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, this is, I'm I'm thriving here. Yeah. And, but I couldn't afford to live there. (laughs) They didn't increase the salary. And I felt like my white male counterparts were were living comfortably. Right. And I, I had the same education and experience and it just didn't work out where they sort of caught my bluff where I was like, well, I'm leaving, you know, and I did. So it was good because when I came, I moved back home for just a, a little bit, was trying to figure out what I was going to do, PhD, go back into higher ed. And Pastor was like, oh, you can help me uh, do some conference planning and some stuff at the church. But I was also working part time as a pastoral counselor at a, a wellness center that wasn't far. And they said, look, we need help with our with our young population. And we know you work with girls. And then was working part time um, as at the Center for Black Church Studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, um, just as a program administrator. So it was one of those g- taking gigs, yep. you know, everybody has those seasons. Oh, I and, remember those uh, times. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I will have that, you know, may have it again. I don't know. Hope prayerfully, you know, not. But it worked out. And but I was eight, I had the flexibility and I was exploring things. And the more I met those girls that I counseled, the more I said, man, this has been a consistent part of my life. No matter where I've been, whether I've been at Georgetown or in California, whatever, I've been in spaces where I'm working with a group of black girls or having one relationship with another black girl you know, a mentoring relationship or something. And I felt like, man, you know, Black Girls has been just a theme that a calling that I feel like that I have. So I focused in and honed in on that and started something called Becoming Conference during that time Mm -hmm. there. And it was just a one day, you know, conference for when I said Black and Brown girls specifically, just centering them because I noticed there were conferences that would have white faces, white faces, white faces, and then maybe an Asian face and a Black face. You know, like, and then, and then say, oh, we're diverse. And mm-hmm. so I wanted it to be, no, this, you all are at the center of this space and other people can come other, but your this centers your experiences and your issues. So I started that then, cause I said, you know, if I ever had an opportunity to give the girls that I had been working with one-on-one a platform, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted that. Um, and becoming what I felt like was like my way of giving back. Yeah. And then I wound up doing the Becoming Conference through Princeton, since I was already working there. So we had it at Princeton Seminary and there were girls that came that were like, I've never been to to this side of Jersey before. (laughs) Like it was really great and it was always affordable. So fast fast forward and then during that time, someone reached out to me about writing, said, look, I've seen some of your little stuff that you've done on Twitter or whatever. You know, would you be interested in writing for us? And I'm like, I don't have anything to write about. And one thing led to another and parable. The brown girl was born. So that's that is the long but very short version of how I got to where I am <laughs> today. I really like it. And I resonate with so much of what you're saying, because I think sometimes people think of their life as this very linear experience and that, oh, I just I'm going to go from point A to point B. And then that's that's how I got there. But that's Mm -hmm. just truly not the majority of our lives and our stories. You go from B to C and you zigzag and you go here and you go there and then somehow you land and you're like, oh, I'm doing some things that, that I love and that I feel purpose in. But it all kind of like adds up together so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that you speaking on that reminded me of when I um interned at a mental hospital for my social work degree when I was Mm -hmm. getting my bachelor's Mm -hmm. and um 
It was such an interesting experience and it really just shaped so many things in me of how I, I, I look at the world and view the world. And I knew from that internship, well, this is not for me, mm-hmm. but I learned a lot about life through it. Right. right. So right. Um, I love that you're sharing all these different experiences that you had and how they kind of just one thing led to to another, but really mm-hmm. like came full circle back to the heart of the work that you've, you know, you grew up with. So I really love that your work, especially in Unbossed, is really drawing out like the light and the brilliance of black girls and teaching me about young black girls doing amazing things that I have not heard about, (laughs) Um, teenagers and young adults. And so what led you to write that book specifically? Yeah, actually, what you just said, like part of it was to introduce people to to girls who we may not have heard of their work. Um, there's so many though, you know, I'm, I'm confessing of, of, of young girls whose work I just don't know. Part of it is lack of exposure. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, lack of being taken seriously. That was the other reason why I wrote it. I wanted, I wanted the girls to their, the girls, their lives, their experiences and their work to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. which is why I wrote it sort of, say using sort of academic vernacular in it because you know it's not just oh look her look at her up there leading and I'm like no she's a specific type of leader right and there's backing behind this there's definition and there's research so that was why that was some of the why uh some of the how uh that sort of mixes with the why you know around the time of uh 2020 maybe like May June um, right after the pandemic. So Parable of Brown Girl, my first book came out February 2020. Great month because I had no idea that the world was going to be shut down the next month. So it was a great month, right? <laughs> Just looking back, it's like, oh, I'm a book release party. You know, I'm at Barnes & Noble. I'm flying to Chicago and the sky is the limit. I'm going to Essence this summer. Didn't know it was going to be canceled. You know, the whole thing. Uh-huh. It was just like, uh, so that was a great month. Then March came. And I was actually wound up quarantining with my family. And uh, I, the things that I had lined up because I wasn't going to write again. You know, I, part of me thought Parable is a one and done book, mm-hmm. you know, so I poured so much into it because I was like, I don't have anything else to say or write about after this. So everything's going in this book. And so I wasn't even considering or thinking about another book. I wanted also to enjoy the fruit of your labor. It was it was a hard uh, process, Parable of the Brown Girl, writing it. And I was doing a lot of grieving. And so I was like, okay, now that I can see the light. But, you know, things were shut down. And so the things that I had planned were either canceled or things were moved virtually where I just wasn't leaving our house in New Jersey. I didn't want to be one of those people that, you know, was like, oh, I'm going to write a book during the pandemic. Like that just was not... I felt like it was a little pretentious of me to even say that. And then um, the, the 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 virtual graduation started because people were really thinking about the class of 2020 and just, I mean, I was sad. The, the kids here, you know, mm-hmm. just them not being able to celebrate and have prom and things like that. So I was, we were seeing a lot of Gen Z on TV and people talking about Gen Z. How are they doing? Um, you know, the virtual graduation that Barack Obama did. And I remember somebody was like, I mean, this is great and all, but it's still not a graduation. So we were wondering how they were faring, their mental health, but they were still at the center of conversation. Mm-hmm. George Floyd murder happens. And you see young people in the in the after effect of that leading marches. And, you know, I mean, you see them even more so than you did um, in previous movements. We right. were seeing just like 15, 16, 17 year olds. 
And that's where Unbossed came about because I was seeing young girls specifically. Um, and I'm like, wow, they're really out here doing the work in the midst of their suffering and mm-hmm. um, what they've got going on. And so I started doing some research, um, um, trying to see who who was doing what. So I remember being outside in my backyard on our, on our deck and it was, you know, really nice. And, and the world was quiet then. You remember like, yeah. yes, you can hear a pen drop, which is weird. I'm weirdly smiling because it was a bad time. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the worst of times is the best of times, which was that phrase from I think George Bernard Shaw. And uh, and so um, that's what it was. I was in back there and I'm Googling and I'm looking things up and I'm seeing some of the girls that I wrote about. Um, and that's where it started. I started doing reaching out to some of them, whether it's DM or whatever. And and they reach back and I say, hey, would you be interested in just talking to me? And, uh, you know, doing Zoom interviews in the backyard, you know, during the pandemic. So one girl in particular, the chapter one was Sonia. She doesn't live far from me in New Jersey. So I was able to actually go to her house and we That's sat out cool. in the backyard and I recorded her in the backyard. So, yeah, this is good stuff. That's really special. I I love what you're talking about, not only in the books, but just even like what you embody in your life. I remember being young and I had different mentors like and I can like mile mark who they are and what age I was and they meant so much to me. And I always said to myself, like, I will always pay it forward to young people, young girls, people who are younger than me because somebody else did it for me and it was so meaningful and it was a priority to my parents. Like if there was a trusted person that they knew was younger that could positively influence us, they Mm -hmm. were like, go ahead, hang out and take them out. You know, I was eight and there was a 17 year old that would go take me out and we would hang out and go to the mall. I thought I was so grown, you know, but it meant so much to me. And I knew that I was young, but I also was a leader and my parents cultivated that and fostered Mm -hmm. that in me. Like you, you know, you are a leader and this is how you lead. And so what I'm wondering with you, especially because you said people didn't take you seriously at times, um, I could totally relate to that feeling like they people don't take me seriously. I look super young, even still to this day. And, you know, usually it takes a little bit of a few conversations before people are like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. I'm not going to treat her like she's, you know, 12 Mm -hmm. or something. But do you remember when you were young and feeling like, you had a sense of purpose or like there was just something that you might not be able to shake. Like, what was that like for you when you were younger? It was difficult for me because even though I can look back um, and say there was so much influence that 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 those the growing up in that environment had on me, I didn't blossom or evolve into sort of walk into that until a little bit later. It wasn't really until college. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a basketball player growing up and I played year round and played AAU. Now I'm short, so most people wouldn't know, you know, wouldn't know unless I, you know, they know me from back in the day. But that was where I felt like I shined. Mm-hmm. That was the only place I felt like I I had any uh, visibility. Mm. And so I would go, you know, my parents, you know, were very, very supportive, but along with being supportive, were also making sure I was involved in things in the church and outside of the church and stuff. But even being involved in those, I remember always feeling alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my friends, but I wasn't a speaker. You know, I wasn't the one that volunteered to be up front for stuff. You know, there were other ones that did that. And I was friends with them, hung out with them, you know, 
or watched from afar. But I, I had a tendency to feel overlooked quite a bit, but mm-hmm. I just I hadn't come to my, my own voice. There are things too. these teenagers of these days have access to language and resources that I don't think we had. Um, I'm grateful to have had the mentoring and things like that. But just even the phrase self-care, I mean, it just wasn't a phrase, you know, growing up. I wish it was. I think we knew we needed to, you know, oh, we probably need to take care. I don't know. It just wasn't a part of it wasn't a Mm -hmm. part of things, you know, so those types of things. The phrases that we use, you know, black girl magic wasn't a phrase until much later. So true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I think we take uh, take for granted the fact that this generation is equipped in ways that I think we we weren't particularly as young black women. I even know the word colorism, which was something that I dealt with a lot of, you know, um, particularly being in predominantly white white environments in my school. And you're like, light, all we knew was light skin, dark skin. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know in between, <laughs> you know, it was either you're the light or you're dark That's or whatever, true. you know, and that was how we, how we maneuvered. So I struggled, I struggled quite a bit in, in, in feeling sort of overlooked, but, but some of it was, was internal, it was internal insecurities body image issues. I mean, you name it, it was just, and then we had to sort of deal with it on our own, even though we might've been in positive environments. Right. You know, I didn't have the books, certain books and things to go to um, in order to, to, to speak into it. Right. So it wasn't until later that I really grew up, grew out. And, you know, I wish I started my natural hair journey much sooner, but oh, what yeah. no phrase natural hair journey. That's so true. Or you getting braids. <laughs> that is so true. That was my childhood. Right. It was a perm or it was braids. That perm was it. Micros. And the closest we got to feeling free was micros. Yeah. And that was after 16 hours and no edges in the chair oh my gosh <laughs> yes yes i remember that oh my gosh <laughs> I, I mean when i think like man i mean even though i just we we i went back and forth on twitter about my lo- uh, our sister locks yeah. right and you know just i just wish a man like that i just started certain things much sooner had the courage to do it much sooner i didn't i'm grateful for for my journey but but the young people these days have that access and that freedom and ways yeah. that i think we didn't I completely agree with you. I wish I would have gotten locks much sooner. Oh my gosh. I, I really, it took me so long. I just didn't have the courage. And my now husband, and we were just like dating at the time, but I was like, I think I want to, I think I want to lock my hair. Mm-hmm. And he was like, that's great. You should do it. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like that's what I needed. Just, you know, my family was like, you know, yeah, but then like yeah. it's permanent, you know, like, it's, and so I just needed like one person to give me that like vote of confidence. Like you can do it, get it done. And my brother had locked his hair mm-hmm. and, you know, but he was like, are you sure? Cause this is, this is it. Mm-hmm. Like you lock your hair. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know I can cut them out, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I was like, I think this is what I want to do. And I am so happy. I know. I'm it's so not happy. Like, it's not like, I think that maybe like, what, it, what was the big deal? I just, it didn't really, I'm so mad. I'm mad that it wasn't like five or 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Granted, I'm grateful, right? For like where I am now, but I'm like, where was I? How come I didn't know that this like free life existed? Yes. <laughs> it's like yes. I'm so much freedom and I'm like, it just took much longer to get 
for some of us, it, it took a little bit longer to get to where we are. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I think that's like the benefit of seeing like young people now so empowered, like you're saying, right. and have the language. I'm so impressed with Gen Z. Every time mm-hmm. I interact with them, I'm like, y'all are just, you're amazing. Mm-hmm. The world mm-hmm. is in good hands. I constantly mm-hmm. say that. Like the world's in great hands with mm-hmm. Gen Z. And I love their tenacity. They tell it like it is. They're not just going to take what you say at face value. Like they even research their answers. Like they're just so great. And so I'm wondering like, from what your experience and what you've seen as you do your research, like why do you think that young black girls leadership capabilities are often underestimated and even undervalued i'm trying to think of like one out of like a million responses to that because it's why black women are underestimated and and, you know it's Mm -hmm. just it's it follows us so we they they might feel or they might be this way or excuse me that might be a reality for them now as teenagers but it will be a reality for them later in life it's just gonna keep happening I'm noticing this trend. We have these moments, right, on like social media where black when black women are like really in. Mm-hmm. Listen to black women, you know, rolls eyes. Like, I mean, yes, I'm very grateful for it and everything, but I just see it. It just happens, and then it just pops out. So after the election, it was black women, black women, black women. We saved the day. We got whatever, you know, uh, and then nothing. And mm-hmm. then Amanda Gorman when she spoke, and then quiet. And then Simone Biles stands up or Naomi Osaka, and we're magic again, and then nothing. You know, it's like, I'm waiting for the moment, you know, and if something happens when I'm on a list on somebody's, you know, website of of books that they should read about black girls, about black women and girls, right? Because like, it's not until the, it's when the, those moments happen in socially in society that then it winds up being like in again. It'll be cool. And everybody's right. like, oh, your sales are going up. Oh, because Simone Biles did something. But I long for the day where we can just be in, right? Like where we're not a fad. Right. I think part of the what's happening with these girls is they're part of the, you know, the, the social sort of problematic in and out of you know, black women being in, black women are out, black women are cool, black women are not, you know, like, yeah. And we're constantly sort of ignored and on the margins just in general as women. So they definitely are as young people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's just a given. I mean, then people don't, but, but overall, I will say when it comes to leadership studies, you do not think about black women and girls, black girls, forget it. Mm. That is just not on the table. You're going to get a quote from white men in leadership, or you might get a quote from Michelle Obama or, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey. When it comes to leadership, that's how people think of leaders. What I'm trying to do is get people to think of another group, like black girls can also be uh, leaders as well. I love that. And I think it, it's what you're saying, man, like Oprah, and then we're gonna, you know, um, <laughs> Michelle Obama. And it's just so true. There's like so many. And as much as I love them, there's just so many people, so many women, and they aren't the only ones, right? And so I just think that broadening perspective and broadening the table and the imagination and expansion of black women who we are and our contributions is so important which is why I feel like your book is so important to show what's happening with young people and what they're doing so with all of your experience with young people 
I was hoping that you'd be able to share maybe like, I don't know, a tidbit, a nugget on the ways people can help guide students to find their purpose and passion, especially these days, right? When there's so many narratives thrown at you, you need to go here and do this, do this, do that, and then you'll be successful. But just like you're saying, okay, I got my degree in this, I'm not really using it, you know, but here I am doing this other work. And I think that we there's a there's a place where we can help guide young people and help them find their purpose and passion. But what does that tangibly look like? Uh, so I think it's a few things. I think for starters, them seeing us live out our lives. So living out our lives as honestly and, and as authentically as possible. What I try to do, especially with the young girls that I work with here at the school, particularly the young black girls, you know, is not front like, <laughs> you know, um, like I have it all together, right? you know, um, now granted you have to protect yourself and you're, you know, to an extent, but you know, they need to see the, um, the imperfect days, the imperfection. They need to hear about the failures. They need to just see me just being normal. You know, that's something that's really, really, really important. I think the other thing too is relationally, um, you know, I used to say youth ministry is not for the faint at heart. And I didn't mean that in terms of like programmatically uh, or, you know, planning events as much as it is like you building relationships takes time and, and patience and work and it's not overnight. And the only way to really truly sort of guarantee a fair amount of influence with young people is to have relationships with them. And yeah, I remember when I worked at APU, my boss, uh, Woody Morewood, he, he said, you're going to spend the first year just taking people to, to Starbucks or just saying, hey, do you want to grab some lunch? Just having just some one on one conversations. He's like with students, with the janitor, with everybody, anybody you can think of at this school, you spend the, the first year doing that. I didn't get it originally. And he would look at my calendar and say, there's too many white spaces. You need to have appointments. You need to have, you know, hanging out with people. Like, why do you want me to hang out people? Because in the years moving forward, you're building relationships, you're building trust. Also, he like if I needed something on campus, you know, like, hey, can you open this bill? You know, I need such and such. I know them well, you know, like mm-hmm. it's not about using people. It's really just about building. It's hard to build relationships. He's like, it's going to yeah. take a year. I'll never forget that because with young people, that's really how it is. And so tangibly, I think with people, you know, we may not be able to have a mega... <laughs> It's not the mega church mentality of how many masses can I just like shoot with one dart? You don't do that with young people. It's who are the young people within your sphere of influence and how can you reasonably within the the confines of the boundaries of your own life, build certain relationships with them, um, whether it's indirectly, directly, whatever it might be in order to be an, an influence or a guide. You don't have to be the sort of everyday mentor, but they're not going to listen to you if they don't trust you. Right. And they're not going to trust you unless, you know, you built relationships. Now, not forcing the relationships per se, but, you know, for me, when I, the girls, let's use the girls here, you know, I think of one in particular that I wrote about in Parable, you know, it there one day where she came to my apartment, hung out on the couch and it's like, you know what, I'm struggling or, you know, I need some help about some guidance for such and such. That was after a whole six months yeah. <laughs> of being here, of me saying, hey, you want to come on by? You know, if you, my door is open. And she's like, thanks. No, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually being like, I think I might come by, you know, eventually, slowly, but surely. And then that conversation took place. It's a trusted conversation. 
I think these young people need trust, trust in relationships because there's so many that they can't. Mm. That's a really good point. And I think that when people think of young people, sometimes they they think, well, just because I'm older than you, you have to respect me. Mm. And I think that's really silly because (laughs) age does not mean that these young people are just going to automatically believe you, respect your word and and feel like you're a credible person to them. And Mm so I, I like that advice of like really, truly building relational equity, because if you don't have that, it's so true. You're not going to get as far as you'd like to you'd like to get in connection with people. So one question that's our my last question for you, and it's what we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Um, what are you hopeful for right now? Oh, that's a hard question in the pandemic. It is. <laughs> in the pandemic. But it's such a good question. Let me go back. Because if you would have asked that in 2018, 2019, you know, we have these just sort of these these prim and proper perfected response i think mm-hmm. now you get the real nitty-gritty you know like what are you hopeful for in the midst of the darkness you're like oh god <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i really had to answer like with truth you know before it'd be like i hope the sun and the moon you know like <laughs> answer it all <laughs> now it's like oh okay uh gosh i think what makes me hopeful and this isn't just me plugging the book but the young people really, truly do. They, I'm very hopeful. There's such, there's such light in, a, in, in the midst of darkness to see resilience, to see everything that they've been through, the pandemic, school shootings, you know, post Donald Trump, you know, I mean, it's just, and yet they still, I see some of their little joy. You know, one of the girls I, I was interviewing for Instagram Live from the, from the book was talking the other day about how she has this newfound like love of wrestling. She loves watching wrestling, mm-hmm. you know, but it was just like, she gets so much joy and I watch her tweet about wrestling and I'm just like, wow, you know, it's it, this is a miserable time we're living in. And they found ways of creating change. They found ways of finding joy. You know, they find ways of pushing through in spite of things being canceled and them having to wear masks and maybe not go to prom. And, you know, there's just I can't imagine what this would have what how this would have taken me under living in the midst of all this as a 16 year old. But to see them, it's just like like you said, the, the kids are all right. Yeah, I believe in what you're saying and really the hope. Truly, it it lies with them. I feel even about my niece and nephew, even though they're, you know, four and three, I feel so comforted by their innocence Mm. because there's so much going on in the world, but the world is so simple for them. Mm-hmm. And it just gives me some hope, causes me to pause mm-hmm. and, you know, realize that there are some real bright spots in life. And so I love that that's what you're hopeful for right now. And I really want everybody to go and get your book. Y'all are going to love it. You're just going to learn so much. You're going <laughs> to learn about so many new people. And I was really enjoying it, learning about so many amazing young women and their purpose in in life. And so anyways, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And um, I'm just so glad you got to be here and tell us more about your book. Thank you. Hey, everybody. It is time for our favorite segment and yours, Go Off Sis. 
Okay, so this go off sis, I am going to be doing it solo, but I wanna do it anyways because we didn't do it last week, so I'm gonna do it with you all this week. So here it goes. Let me tell you what my bless is for the week. And then I'll get into the mess. The Bless is Abbott Elementary. I don't know if you are watching that show. If you are not, you should watch it immediately. It is on ABC, I believe. But Quinta Brunson is the creator of it. She's super hilarious. You've probably seen a lot of her content at BuzzFeed over the years when she used to work there. But she's amazing. She's a comedian and a writer. And this is a show she created. And it's phenomenal. And I love it. It's like The Office, but for like education and school. It's great. The mess. Well, recently I got married and we just got a puppy. And the puppy, I'm telling you, is giving me the hardest time today specifically. So the mess is me trying to manage puppy puppy parenting. I can't even talk. Puppy parenting. So if you have tips, okay, puppy parenting tips, Give them to me. Yes, I'm watching YouTube, okay? I am watching YouTube. Yes, he's going to go to a training class soon in a few weeks. But in the meantime, I need all the tips you can give. He is the cutest and the sweetest, so we do love him. But sometimes, mm, sometimes I don't like him. But I love him most all the time. So that is my mess this week. There's some more deeper mess that I want to talk about that I'm just going to kind of put like a slight little highlight here. Um, what's happened to Amir Locke with the no-knock warrant? If you have not heard of his story, please go look it up. It happened in uh, Minneapolis. But it really, you know, reminds me of what's also gone on with Breonna Taylor two years ago. And I feel like we just are in this cyclical cycle of like, have we really learned anything? Have things really changed and improved? We're still spinning in circles, fighting the same battles. And it's really unfortunate that yet again another life was unjustly taken and so there's a lot for us to you know talk about but no knock warrants are dangerous they're dangerous and they're deadly and they we need to get rid of them so that's the heavy mess but I my thoughts and, and prayers are with Amir Locke's family and please look up the story and continue to advocate for justice for Amir and advocate for the ending of no knock warrants. Thank you all so much for joining us this week on the Melanated Faith Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and support our work. We can't do this without you. We cannot do this without your help. And we're just really grateful for everybody who continues to listen to the podcast and enjoys it. I tell you, every time somebody comes up to me or says I listen to the podcast and I love it, I think to myself, oh my goodness, thank you. Um, sometimes, you know, you feel like maybe it's just like your mom and a few of her friends listening to the podcast, but it's so great to hear that there's other people listening that resonate with our work and our words. And um, we just love you all dearly. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast and we will see you all next time. <laughs>